When the first check came in, Josh Redmond, who was then twenty-seven, had no idea what it was for. The issuer name printed on the check was United States Agent, with an address of K Street Northeast, Washington D.C. zero four zero four zero, and the account was with the Intermerchant Bank, also of Washington. The amount of the check was one thousand dollars. Why? Josh had done two years in the army after college, but this didn't seem to have anything to do with the army. He was listed with a temp agency on Pine Street in downtown Manhattan that year, and so he asked Fred Stern, the guy he dealt with there, if the check had anything to do with them. And Fred assured him it did not. We don't give you money just for fun, he said, which was certainly true, but somebody did. Like most temps, Josh was financially shaky in those days, so he deposited the check into his checking account. Partly just to see if it would clear, and it did. So he had an extra thousand dollars. Found money. A month later, it happened again. Another check. Another thousand dollars. Same payer, same bank, same lack of conversing letter or any other kind of explanation. This time, Josh studied the check a little more intently and saw there was a phone number under the United States agent's address, with the two o two area code for Washington D.C. So he called it. The phone rang and rang, no answer. The next day he called the number again with the same results. The day after that he deposited the check in his checking account and it cleared. A month later, another one arrived. Who was giving him all this money? A thousand dollars a month, regular as clockwork. The checks dated the first of each month, arriving in his mailbox between the third and the fifth. No explanation, never an answer at that telephone number. He thought about writing them a letter, but then he realized the address on the checks was incomplete. Where on K Street? Without a house number, he couldn't hope to send them a letter. The checks had first appeared in August. In January, it occurred to him that the puzzle would soon have to be resolved, because the United States agent, whoever they were, would have to send him a ten ninety nine tax form. So he waited for it. He got the ten ninety nine from the temp agency. And from two other very short-term employers, but nothing from United States agent. Would he get in trouble if he didn't declare the five thousand dollars? But how could he declare it without the ten ninety-nine? And what would he declare it as? And was he rich enough to volunteer to pay extra tax if he didn't absolutely have to? He was not. A year and a half later, he moved to a better apartment on the west side, having graduated from the temp life to an actual job as an advertising salesman for a group of neighborhood newspapers in Manhattan and the Bronx. He was sorry the monthly thousand dollars would end, but he had no way to send them a forwarding address, did he? So that was that. Except that the third of the following month, the check came in just the same, addressed to him at his new apartment. How had they done that? How had they known he'd moved? It was more than a little creepy. If he hadn't been spending the money all along, he might have tried sending it back at that point. Except he couldn't. He couldn't send the money back any more than he could write United States agent a letter, not without more of an address than K Street Northeast. He considered writing return to sender on the envelope, but the envelope too bore that same incomplete address printed on its upper left corner. In the end, though he felt somewhat spooked, he deposited the check. In the third year of the mysterious checks, he went to work as an account rep at Sewell McConnell Advertising on the Cloud Bank toilet paper account. And the following year, he married Eve, whom he'd been dating off and on for three years and living with for four months. 
He didn't mention the checks to her, which followed him to their new apartment, neither before nor after the wedding, and he realized this must mean that, at some level, he felt guilty about taking the money. He hadn't done anything for it. He didn't deserve it. The checks merely kept coming in. And in not telling her, he doubled his guilt, because now he also felt guilty that he was keeping this secret. But he kept it anyway. Which Eve made easier, it must be said, by having ceded to him exclusive control of their checking account, even though she'd lived and worked successfully on her own in New York City for five years before they'd gotten together. Josh didn't need the thousand dollars a month by then, and had come to realize it wasn't very much money at all. Twelve thousand dollars a year, a nice supplement to his income, no more, and, of course, tax-free. The next year, when he and Eve had young Jeremy, and she quit her clerical job with the cable company, planning to be a full-time mom until Jeremy entered nursery school at four, the annual twelve thousand became a bit more meaningful again, but by that time it was simply a part of his life— the check that came in every month, year after year, as natural as breathing. He had stopped telling himself he didn't deserve it, because if it came in so steadily, every single month, with no complaints, no demands made against him, maybe he did deserve it. It was July 15th, a hot sunny Friday afternoon, and Josh was seated at the ferry terminal in Bayshore, waiting for the ferry to take him over to Fire Island, where he and Eve had rented a small house for the month. She and Jeremy were out there full-time, Josh spending long weekends. Jeremy was two, and on August 1st the checks would have been coming in for a full seven years, crossing with Josh into the new millennium. Josh was secure enough in his job at the ad agency now to be able to take off Friday afternoons and Monday mornings, which meant he never had to ride the extremely crowded ferries packed with those whose weekends were shorter. The daddy boat on Friday evening, the goodbye daddy boat on Sunday evening— or the so-called death boat at 6.30 Monday morning. There were only thirty or forty people in the shade of the roofed dock, seated on the long benches waiting for the ferry, none of them anyone Josh knew. Then a man came over and sat down beside him and smiled and said, Hello. Hi, Josh said, and looked away. Most people didn't speak to strangers out here, and Josh agreed with them. The man kept smiling at Josh. He was about forty, olive-skinned, fleshy-faced but muscular, with thick, curly black hair. He was in chinos and a polo shirt and sneakers, like everybody else. "'I am from United States Agent,' he said. Josh looked at him. Sudden dread clenched his stomach. His mouth was dry. He tried to speak, but couldn't. The man leaned closer. "'You are now active,' he said.' 